Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Anne Friedman. I talked to a friend of the pod, Josie Duffy Rice, who. Ah, uh, one of my faves. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, big, big, big fave. She's a reporter for a great site called The Appeal, where she covers prosecutors, prisons, and everything um, under the criminal justice umbrella, long-term kind of advocacy around issues that are really hard, like voting rights and criminal justice policy. And Friedman. Hello. Period after every word. What's going on? <laughs> Comment ça va, mon ami? You know, I'm good over here. <laughs> Listen, I like I can't believe 10 years of friendship and I haven't gotten you to say like hello back. We're gonna work on this, okay? Muy bien. Muy <laughs> bien. <laughs> you know what? I'll take it. One step in the right direction. <laughs> One good step in the right direction. I'll take it. <laughs> How you doing over there? Oh, you know, I'm like, I am post-election, post-tour decompressing still. I'm getting ready to go on a little vacation. You know, like, uh, good things. Like, honestly, also just coping with the fact that the year is basically over. That's like, wow, can you even believe? Right. Like, you know, I always say I thrive in Q3, but Q4 does not exist, if we're honest. So Right. Q3 has also flown. (laughs) Yeah, like Q4 is literally like how, you know, like, did I get my shit in time to send my Christmas presents by December 24th? Like, that's my entire goal of Q4. Yeah, I mean, and the deck is stacked against anyone with international people they've got to send to. Girl. Like, that is, your deadlines are so early. (laughs) Girl, girl. But the deadlines and then, like, the the customs people who are always trying to make me pay for duties, like, mm mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. I have learned to game that system, though. It's all good. Mail fraud? You're Ma- coponing it? Listen, it's not <laughs> mail fraud, okay? <laughs> but I'll talk to you about it offline. <laughs> After we're recording. After we're done here. <laughs> USPS, please don't come for me. Um, um, oh, my gosh. Well, um, I'm very excited about today's episode. Tell me. I talked to a friend of the pod, Josie Duffy Rice. Ah, one of my faves. Sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like big, big, big fave. Josie is a lawyer, a journalist. She writes essays. She's a reporter for a great site called The Appeal, where she covers prosecutors, prisons, and everything um, under the criminal justice umbrella. She also has been writing about race, gender, culture, and criminal justice, like that intersection with politics forever. You've probably read her work on the New York Times and the Atlantic and Slate. Josie is killing it all of the time. Uh, She's awesome. And she has really been, you know, like you've always like articulated so well about how part of having friends is that they influence like your thinking around like very big issues sometimes. And Josie is somebody who has completely rewired how I think about criminal justice issues and how I think about especially like race and gender and how they intersect there. She's somebody who just has dedicated her life to this. And so 
it's really exciting to talk to her about these issues and also think about them as a long-term, you know, long-term kind of advocacy, uh, you know, around issues that are really hard, like voting rights and criminal justice policy. So, yeah. True thing, true thing that I do is I do not, like, make a tweet or an Instagram post about any criminal justice issue without first checking Josie's feed to be like, what are the experts saying? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not even kidding. I use her as, like, personal, like, don't put your foot in your mouth fact check because you are so right. Like, she knows, she knows these issues in a way that I feel, like, is just not... Is, is just very underrepresented in kind of like mainstream news consumption. And Justice in America, her podcast, has become such a valuable resource for me as I deepen my understanding too. My name is Josie Duffy Rice, and I am a journalist with The Appeal. And what is The Appeal? The Appeal is a criminal justice outlet that focuses on publishing articles about the criminal justice system that identify the actors and the places where most of the mass incarceration action happens. So most of what happens in the criminal justice system happens on the state and local level. The players that are most responsible are uh, the prosecutors, um, along with obviously uh, police, but also state legislators, um, city councilmen, your mayor, the sheriff. And often these positions are not getting the sort of attention um, necessary to uh, hold them accountable. And so the appeal tries to bridge that gap. Yeah, I would say that like most of your advocacy work, it really centers around uh, voting rights and criminal and criminal justice policy. Yeah. Also, I should I should say for the record that like you are my smartest friend on all of these issues. Oh, thanks. And not just you, in like, general. Largely Listen, you're, uh, listen, you are a lot of people's smartest friends. Let somebody else take some credit, okay? Kidding, but, you know, kidding. like, you have, you have, like, largely shaped a lot of my thinking around, uh, around criminal justice policy. That's good to so. hear. That's, the propaganda is working. The propaganda is working, because you know me, like, I have a degree from law and order. She, That's the extent to which I know about the law, so. Me and you and Olivia Benson are on different sides of this fight. <laughs> Although I also love Law & Order. Let's not get it twisted. But you, the point you make, I think, is really important, which is that most of what you see about the criminal justice system is sort of this, like, Law & Order narrative, right? Like, there's a bad guy. Here are the people really wanting to take him down. He goes to trial. The defense attorney is kind of sleazy. Like, the motivations of the system are so uh, simple, so straightforward, and so much of what we see represented in the criminal justice system, you know, on TV, the general stories you hear. But in reality, like like everything else, it's just much more complicated and I think much more um, disconcerting. And so um, that's sort of what we hope to do and what I've been trying to do for the past, you know, eight or nine years in various capacities. You wrote a piece right before the midterms about, um, you know, how voters around the country are punished yeah. and how the prosecution of individual voters for fraud right. is a, like it's it's about a larger trend to intimidate most people about voting in general. Right. And I'm wondering if you could like unpack that a little and put it into context of the last the midterms that we just sure had. sure. So this um, I was mostly writing about Georgia, where currently the fight to figure out who is going to be governor, the fight, the fight to ensure that all the votes are counted continues. What you see all the time from the right is this claim of voter fraud, right? That like people are busing people in, 
getting their, like, friends who aren't citizens to vote. People are voting in two or three places. This is a narrative that has been going on for 15 years now. Right. You know? There is always a meme. There is always, like, some sort of meme that totally push around the fact that undocumented right. people, or as they like to call them, illegals, right. or flooding the country right. to vote or whatever. Yeah. And it never actually pans out. No, it doesn't. Like, where is the evidence of all There's of really no evidence of it. And when you think about it, it doesn't make much sense, right? Like, if you're here and you're undocumented, like, why would you risk your entire life for one vote? Like, everybody knows it's important to vote. You also know that you're one vote. For the love of democracy, Right, Josie, you just love democracy so much. All. Right, <laughs> right. And so you see this sort of pattern of people claiming voter fraud and not being able to dredge up any evidence. And, like, actually, the Heritage Foundation, a super conservative organization, did, like, a database of voter fraud to prove that it exists, which actually kind of ends up doing the opposite because it's, like, a few hundred cases. Some of them don't even seem to qualify, and it's over 20 years. That's billions of votes we're talking about. It's not actually having an impact on elections, and it's really not even Why happening. Why do you think that it's so pervasive that it's so pervasive for, like, one side to push this narrative so You much? know, it's interesting because it's, it's strategy, and it's strategy in a very interesting way, which is that you would think that the right would take the strategy of just trying to build a coalition of people to vote for them. <laughs> you know, you would think that the answer to um, to... You know, this idea that, like, to win, they want less people to show up to the polls, to me, seems like a strategic failure for them to actually appeal to the American people. But part of it is imparting fear and imparting fear in communities where the criminal justice system has been particularly harsh. And that includes the communities I wrote about, which are the South Georgia counties where there are just a couple thousand people. The towns have very few people in them. The district attorney's office has a couple ADAs. But, you know, these are small, small, small communities. And in the in the main one I wrote about, a woman named Olivia Pearson in 2012, who is a big get-out-the-vote activist in her small town of, of Douglas, Georgia, which is in Coffee County. She was at the polls, and this woman asked her, how does the machine work? The woman wasn't even at the machine. She was kind of walking towards it. And Olivia Pearson yeah. was like, you just put your card in the machine, and then you you know, you go through and you make your selection and then you, you give them your card. And she signed a sheet of paper, even with that little help. Olivia Pearson signed a sheet of paper saying, just for the record, I helped this woman figure out how her machine works. Four years later, she's indicted on felony charges for voter fraud, but then also some a couple of charges that weren't actually even in the Georgia statutes that aren't even against the law. She was threatened with years in jail. She was forced through wow. two trials. She's on the city council. She lost friends and relationships. And, you know, the local papers were not very kind to her about it. And what it does to your reputation, right, just to your day-to-day -day life to be charged with four felonies for something like this is kind of immeasurable. Eventually, she was acquitted, but it took two years and this is just one of the ways that we see the criminal justice system used as a weapon against black and poor people, and especially in rural communities. Because what this does is it tells everybody in the neighborhood, like, if you go vote, you're risking arrest. Yeah. And the thing about it, too, that you were so good about pointing out in the, in the op-ed that you wrote is that this case is, like, obviously very unusual. You gave that uh, an example of 
a woman in North Carolina who pretended to be her dead mom so that she could vote for Donald Trump twice. Yeah. I'm like, that's like, that's actual real voter fraud. Like you, you were out here weekend at burning your mom. mom It's wild. You can make America great again. My favorite part of that story is that this woman said, I didn't know that she couldn't (laughs) vote first of all. And then she was like, she, her dying wish was that she voted for Donald Trump. So I, you know, well, if it's her dying it, wish, I yeah. guess. You know what I mean? I mean, we all know your like, dead people can't God, vote. That's a, that We know that. If God wanted her to vote for Donald Trump, he would have kept that's her. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's what I'm <laughs> right. saying. But, you know, the thing about that case that is, like, fascinating is that there, the prosecutors refuse to pursue charges, right? right? Because right. it is to their discretion. Mm-hmm. Um, prosecutorial discretion, a thing I learned about in Law and Order. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> and also from me. Is, you know, um, right. And no, please, I mostly learn about it from you. And, and Law and Order. Know, and so, right. It's a, it's a thing that like they get to decide whether it is a big deal enough that they can press charges. Yeah. And so in this case, they decide not to for like whatever factors, mostly whiteness factors. Right. But, um, you know, like I was just wondering if you could talk to like the role that prosecutors play in this larger conversation. Yeah, so, you know, when we think about the criminal justice system, we often talk about police on the front end and prisons, which is the back end. And it makes a lot of sense that we focus on those two things because the reality is that, like, that is where a lot of the physical harm, the physical impact of the system is seen, right? Police brutality, shooting unarmed black kids um, on the front end, and then there's the terrible conditions of prison on the back end. What we often do not talk about is the middle, which is the prosecutors, who have an enormous and probably more than any other player in the system amount of power to drive trends in criminal justice, and they have been the main driver of mass incarceration. So there are places nationwide where prosecutors don't prosecute, like, low-level drug possession, right? It's just not a priority of theirs. There are other places where they will prosecute you as far as the law will allow. You could be in Brooklyn and have one experience of after an arrest for a certain low-level crime and in Manhattan and have a totally other experience because prosecutors really have the power to decide whether or not they're going to bring charges. And you see sort of the like best prosecutors, the like most progressive ones, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or Kim Fox in Chicago, you see them take these kind of strong stances of like, we're just not going to prosecute this little stuff. It fills up our jails. It gives people criminal records that they don't need. It starts this trend of like a cycle of being part of this criminal justice system that's so harmful. And it takes up our time. Like it's a waste of our space. Right. But then you see places in the same states where they'll go after that stuff all day. You know, the the voter fraud one is interesting because, like, that prosecutor who didn't prosecute the woman about the Donald Trump thing, like, good. Like, it's just not, it's like, that's a stupid thing to do. You got caught. The vote didn't count. Like, don't, like, you're, like, don't, you don't need to be going to prison for that. You don't need a criminal record. Like, maybe you need to, you know, do some sort of, like, community service or something and call it a day. That doesn't, that, that, that actually, like, I think is a good call. It's the people who go after these crimes that I think are making the, the major mistake. Um, and it's not a mistake. It's intentional. And like you said, it's intentional to, it's about race and it's about class and it's about intimidating people um, in a state where like voters have been intimidated for, you know, a hundred years. One of the things that's always been like super interesting to me about the the work that you do and the conversations that like we get to have in private is that 
it has really challenged me to think about um like what I think about crime you yeah. know, and how I feel about justice in a, in a deep way. Uh-huh. The example of voter fraud is great because nobody should go to jail for like, you know, like doing voter fraud. Right. How do we like in a society where bad things happen all of the time, mm-hmm. how do we make sure that the people who are victims of crime, like get to be heard and get to be, you know, like they have a say also right. in the system. Right. And that they are treated with compassion as well because, you know, it's like we're like I know about restorative justice. I, I want to say intellectually that I believe it. Right. But the truth is that like, you know, the rubber has not hit the road for me on that. Right. So, I you know, you, like you're somebody who thinks very smartly about this. And so for people who are just like civilians that are not like engaged in the larger questions of the law, like what are ways that we can start thinking differently about these issues and we can start addressing a way to live in a more just and compassionate society. Right. But, but that is also like rooted in justice. Yeah. So I think it's a really important question because a lot of this work focuses on the person who is accused of committing a crime. And it's important to also be clear about the importance of someone who's has had a crime committed against them. My answer to this would be, I think, pretty fundamental. One is that like, to me, there's a difference between consequences and punishment, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, if someone does something, steals my purse, right? I, I think there should probably be consequences for that, depending on what the various forms of that look like. Sometimes restorative justice is the answer. Sometimes it's not. Restorative justice is not perfect either. Can you explain restorative justice? Because I failed to do so. Sure, sure. So restorative justice is this idea that it's sort of an alternative to the criminal justice system. And it is less adversarial and more, what I would say, people trying to get to a solution. So in restorative justice process, and there are various forms of it, and generally, it's about the offender in a situation and the victim to be able to communicate about what harm was done to them and express it in an environment that is safe and productive. um, And for basically both parties to be able to have a conversation where the person who has committed a wrong can hear the person who they harmed and the person who has harmed can can be clear about what kind of consequence or what kind of result would rectify the situation for them or attempt to rectify it. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more of like almost like mediation or negotiation in a way that most things in the criminal justice system are not. What I will say about your question about thinking about victims, one thing is that like I find that the criminal justice system thinks about victims only when what the victim wants aligns exactly with what the system wants. So, you know, if I get my purse stolen from me and I go in and I say, I want this guy to be prosecuted for, like, the highest level robbery or whatever, whatever the charge is. At that point, maybe the prosecutor says, like, okay, that's, that's, we'll, we'll go forward with that or whatever. You know, they, if, they, if I say, like, I want them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, often prosecutors then are thinking about what I want. If I go in and I say, I actually want this guy let off, like, this is not a big deal to me. In fact, like, let's try to figure out a program he can get in or whatever. Is his family hungry? Is that why he stole my purse? What's his deal? Is he in therapy? Whatever. Like, then suddenly what I want tends to be less important. And you see that all the time with death penalty cases, right? Where a victim will say, I want this guy sentenced to death. And then they become a big a, a big central part of a case um, or, you know, a victim's family, because obviously usually the death penalty is 
the person is dead. Um, so they're probably not talking unless they're that woman's mother voting for Donald Trump. But anyway, um, they, <laughs> they... Thank you for tying it I all gotta back bring together. it all together. But that's when you will see someone say, their family wants him to be put to death, to the jury, this is what they want. Victims matter, right? When they say that they don't want someone to be sentenced to death, you get a, you tend to get a different answer in cases where the death penalty, you know, is on the table. So that's just to say that, like, I think that we can really care about victims. We can really hear victims, you know, right now, especially in this moment, women, and address the harm that has been done to them and ensure that there are consequences. The question is, punishment unnecessary punishment for extended amounts of time in a system where we already know has not been able to handle that level of power responsibly, right? Right, right. talk a lot on our show about issues that women should know about, right? Right. They should be active in advocating for and should really be paying attention to. Uh-huh. I was wondering if like you could guide us in discussing issues where, you know, like women's issues and the criminal justice system overlap that you think are really under discussed. Yeah. We have an audience that like cares about this stuff yeah. and can, and, and I will say that like in my own life, even finding out, you know, like something as small as, or small to me at least as knowing that, you know, their programs to like bail out moms during Mother's right, Day right, right. was something that, you know, like was something that I, like I felt so dumb and, you know, like self-absorbed that it's something that I had never thought about. Right, right, right. And and have seen like firsthand the difference that it makes in people's right, lives. Right, right, so right, right. I'm just like yeah, curious about if you, like issues that like you deal with in your work that you wish that more people knew about in that intersection. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question. And I think there are a lot, I think to your point about like stuff you hadn't yet thought about, I do the stuff day in and day out and there's so daily I'm like, oh my gosh, I had never actually thought of that as a solution. I never really understood that was a problem. So that's kind of um, the joy and the tragedy of this work. You're always learning new things. Um, But there are so many issues that disproportionately affect women right now. And I think that, so fundamentally, right, we send a lot of women to prison and we send a lot more women to prison than we ever have. In the past 40 years, the number of prison, women in prison has has grown by 800%. And in a lot of places, they're the most rapidly growing population going to prison, um, being involved in the criminal justice system. They're more likely to go for a drug offense than men are. We're filling prisons and jails with women. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that um, women are an integral part of this system no matter who's in prison, right? And there's an organization called uh, mm-hmm. called SE Justice. It's run by this incredible woman, Gina Clayton. And what SE Justice really um, focuses on is women with incarcerated loved ones. What Gina has really identified, which I think is very important, is that like 
when we talk about bail, for example, who's paying the bail of someone in prison? Probably a woman, probably the mom, the girlfriend, you know, the niece, the sister. These women carry the weight of the system in such a way that is so um, pervasive. When men are being sent to prison at these astronomical rates like they have been for the past few decades, these are women who are now are working two jobs to take care of their kids. Women who are now yeah. taking in, you know, their grandkids when their son goes to prison. For 90% of men who go to prison who have children, their children are taken care of by either the children's mother or a grandmother of the children. So a woman wow. is taking care of those children. When a mother goes to prison, only 25% of the time is that child taken care of by their father primarily. Most of the time, they're also you know, being taken care of by another woman in the family. So you see it left and right that like, women are kind of carrying the load of the system. Another thing we see all the time is women who have their children taken away from them for small offenses, who lose custody of their kids because they um, were caught with drugs or because low-level theft or because they are in jail and they can't pay their bail and so they're not home with their children and then they're charged with neglect. Their children are taken from them maybe put in foster care, someone else gets um, custody. You see the separation of families. We talk about it all the time in the immigration context, which obviously matters so much. It happens daily here with women whose children are being taken from them for small, small offenses. In fact, I don't know if you remember the story a couple months ago of um, the six kids in, I think it was California, who... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was California. Yeah, who were adopted... Uh and their their adopted mothers drove them over a cliff and killed the entire family. Three of those children were siblings who had grown up in Houston for for the beginning of their lives and their mother had some cocaine offense, you know, some cocaine charges on her record and she lost custody of her kids. Her kids were adopted by this family that obviously was not monitored with the same kind of vigilance that she was monitored right, or with. actually you know but the thing about the story that is actually fascinating is that they were monitored the police was like called the, right you know, right they they had they had had a lot of contact with the system right for multiple offenses right but the difference is that those kids are black right. and the women who adopted are, them are white. white exactly and so exactly the the, the consequence was right you know for having contact with the system right was very different for both totally. of, like for both of the parties. Exactly. There. Exactly. And you know that that woman's kids are dead now because she has some she had some cocaine charges. I mean, it's kind of hard to even imagine. Yeah. You see it all the time with women who test positive for drugs while they're pregnant, which can happen for various reasons, often because they're not getting the services they need uh, to address their addiction. They lose custody of their children once they're born usually, and then not only that, they're often sentenced to you know, up to a decade, a decade and a half in prison for testing positive in a drug test while they were pregnant. Well, so listen, you like, I feel like you and I know the answer to this, right? right? But what is the answer that you tell somebody who says, well, those women have drugs in their system and they should not have their children? Right. Because that is the simplistic way of looking at right. it. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that, including people who I would say, think of themselves as very progressive people. Right. I would say that the answer to that is that it's typically more complicated than that. But that on the front end, right, these women don't have the services or the care that they need to address their addiction. So you don't get pregnant and stop, you know, being addicted to opioids. It doesn't happen. Um, and so 
if you can't actually address your opioid addiction, if you don't have a system that's willing to help you figure out what the best path forward for you is as a pregnant woman who has this addiction, but the only answer to your problem is the punishment and the consequences in, then this is never going to be a solvable problem, right? It just is never going to be a solvable problem. The other thing is that like, the reality is that like most of, a lot of these children who's parents test positive at some point for drug use, the impact that that has on a child, I know that that sounds crazy to say it might not even have an impact on the child, but the reality is that like we're drawing a connection to their ability to love and care for their child um, mm-hmm. from something that is is not a direct correlation. So we don't always know, you know, often the ch- there are no signs of um, withdrawal needed f- from the child once they're born, or often this happened at the very beginning of a pregnancy. Right, the larger point is that like, again, it's about paternalism, right? right? And it is that we we have decided that there are decisions that the state exactly. can make for certain exactly. people if they are a certain race or if they right. are a, from a certain class or a certain socioeconomic background. And the state has not earned it. That's, that, that, I think, is exactly the point. The state has not earned the right. You know, the state does not treat poor people, people of color, women, families, mothers, with the sort of respect necessary and provided the sort of services necessary to have earned the ability to take your child away with almost no due process and no access to services. It just is terrifying to me as a mother what is possible when the state doesn't value your life and doesn't doesn't think that you matter. And that's what we see, right? Yeah. This dis- this disproportionately affects black mothers, it disproportionately affects poor mothers, it disproportionately Fortunately, happens in places in the South, and this is the same places that can't even provide basic, you know, maternal care for um, these women, where the the infant mortality rates are are you know off the charts and disproportionate to to white mothers. So, the answer is not for every parent who has not who has made mistakes or has even proven themselves to have some sort of systemic problems. The answer is not always that the state should take your kid. There has to be some other body or influence or ability for other interventions to happen before your child is is taken from you. So those are some of the things that I think really matter for women to focus on. Can you talk about something that you're working on specifically right now? I know that you host a podcast and it's very good. Um, You've had some celebrity guests on there. I have. I learned uh, everything I know from you. (laughs) <laughs> girl I'm just saying better role models. I'm just saying um yeah will you like can you talk a little bit more about the podcast and the work that you're doing um specifically there yeah so we have a podcast called uh, justice in america i host it with clint smith um and our podcast focuses on explaining the basics of some of the issues that people may have heard about and they know they're big deals and they know they care about them, but they don't exactly know how they work. So for example, bail. Bail has been getting so much attention um, right now. And I have like encountered so many people who are like, yeah, bail reform, but also like, how does, what is bail exactly? And like, how does it work? So we do a lot of explaining the very basics. And then we interview someone who's an expert on that topic. So we're actually in the middle of uh, taping season two. We're covering public defense, fees and fines judicial elections, police reform. We have some really exciting people coming on. And it's been a really great opportunity to kind of essentialize how these these systems work in theory and how they actually work in practice and point out sort of where the disparity is between those two realities. 
I love too about the show that it is the level of expertise and of conversation that you have just really always drives home the point that if you are somebody who says that cares about, you know, doing anti-racism work and you are somebody who cares about living in a fair society with justice that like matches our ideals, that these are issues that you should care about, right? Like you can't say that you are, you can't say that you're an ally of people of color and not care about mass incarceration. Yeah. And I think you can't, I, yeah. I think that's 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 absolutely true that like this is a critical issue of our time and you can see how this issue I mean when we talk about the voter fraud cases or we talk about just the general state of our nation right now where we have what I would characterize as a tyrant in power the impact of mass incarceration seems limited to a lot of people it doesn't seem like it's going to happen to you right but if you let the system get out of control and then you have the wrong people in power who are willing to jail their enemies, willing to jail the free press, willing to punish people for voting, willing to punish people for basically being black and alive uh, or poor and alive. Then if you haven't stopped the system, if you haven't made it clear that this is this system is unacceptable, too large, and has too much power, then we're all at a loss. We're all at a risk. So that's sort of what we're trying to drive home, not only how it works, but what it means to have the biggest criminal justice system on the planet, to have the most incarcerated people, both per capita and in sheer number, in the world. It's not something you want to be number one in. (laughs) I mean, it also sounds like, you know, I say this as someone who is, like, not deeply steeped in this work at all. Like, when I think about... The okay, what are the things that I care about that seem completely impossible? Right. I like this is one of those where I'm like, ooh, this mountain. Right. Like, you know, are we yeah. like are like yeah. we're doing the work, but it, it seems yeah. like pretty it seems so daunting. Yeah. Because, but mostly because this is connected to so many th- it's connected to everything else. Right. right. It's like when I start thinking about the ways that the system pathologizes black people right. or that it pathologizes poor people and it pathologizes, you know, like women. I was like, oh, this is where all of these intersections occur. Right. It's like this place right here. Right. So it's like the sheer weight of that makes it seem impossible. Yeah. But, um, I don't actually believe it's impossible. But all of that to say, like, what is giving you like what is giving you hope? Like, what are you seeing around the country that you were like, OK, this is something that is new. Yeah. You're going to keep this energy. And this feels like there there might be a light at the end of the tunnel if we keep doing it. Yeah, this. it's a it's a good that's a great question. And it's funny because we always joke at my at my job. We're like, OK, we're going to all take va- we're going to end mass incarceration by December. We're going to take vacation. Like it's just a, <laughs> it's like such a clear it, the reality is like this is a like decades long fight. Right. Like we might not see the end of it. Um, and that can be depressing. It can also just sort of be, it can be reassuring once you see yourself yeah. as uh, something that will continue for a long time and started way before we did. But there are some things that really give me hope, right? Like there are, there are like progressive prosecutors being elected in some of the um, biggest cities in America and some of the places where mass incarceration was its worst. Again, Philadelphia and Chicago, but places like St. Louis, places like um Places like Orlando or um, um, Houston and towns um, towns that are like typically conservative, right? We're, we're electing prosecutors that see justice in a different way, and some of them are even Republicans. I mean, it's it's not um, the the field the prosecutorial 
uh, misconduct field in terms of being aware of it, it getting attention is is um, bigger than ever, and it's um, it's it's incredible to see where it is now than where it was. Uh, three years ago. You know, we're starting to talk about police brutality in a new way. We're starting to change accountability for some of these people. And that's the real goal here, right? Is that like, if you're running to be the head prosecutor in Chicago, where you have the biggest jail in the nation, um, and you have a history of both higher than average levels of violence and astronomical police brutality um, and wrongful convictions and um, malicious prosecutions. In places like that, where now the DA was elected not by the police union or by people in the kind of law enforcement community, um, but she was elected with the support of Black Lives Matter, with the support of community groups on the ground, Black communities. Wow. That, that to me is a major win because it means that like to get elected again, they have to approve of her, right? They have to stand by her. She has to appeal to them. And um, this is a black woman who grew up in public housing um, in Chicago who really understands sort of both sides of this coin. And she sees this problem for what it is. It's a problem that um, obviously, again, sometimes there have to be consequences for people's actions. Often there have to be consequences. She's not arguing that nobody should ever um, face criminal penalties but she's i mean this is the joke this is the joke in our group chat right? yes is when i always tell you that you like crime i love too much <laughs> i mean it tells <laughs> me i'm, I'm like, the Josie, queen of crime that i love crime you love crime i was like we, like the jails are not gonna fill themselves listen we i don't love much crime. crime i do love people accused who allegedly committed crime i love all of that <laughs> minus some no i you know i think that what she what Kim Fox in Chicago identifies is something that like you and I have also talked about, right? Which is like, it's actually not going to be a problem she solves. It'll be a problem solved by yeah. social services, by affordable housing, by yeah. a job market that gives people opportunity, by a local government that's responsive to the people, by better parks and after school programs for kids, better schools in general. You know, these are the things that keep people away from getting involved in the system. Once someone's in a courtroom, it's too late, right? The opportunities to keep them away from the system are gone now. And so what, you know, there's always other opportunities to keep them away post this certain incident or, you know, reentry opportunities. But what you want is nobody to ever step foot in that courtroom in the first place. And that's actually not the prosecutor's job. That's all the right. other people's job. And so I think... Um, the hope I see is a rethinking of what criminal justice means. It doesn't mean we're going to solve it tomorrow, but there is a path forward and it is exciting. You are somebody that is always pushing. You're always like pushing on really hard issues all the time. And, you know, the times are pretty dark. Yeah, like, I'm are. wondering, like, how do you how do you take care of yourself? Like, you know, you're raising one of my favorite children <laughs> on the entire planet. <laughs> and... And I see the toll that the work takes on you. Yeah. And so I'm just like wondering like how, you know, you know, like how do you go home when you know all of the stuff all the time? What a, first of all, what a kind question for my, <laughs> from this 
from this amazing podcast where you care about people's hearts. Um, but <laughs> but listen, you're like, we need our best fighters to be fit all the time. Yeah, so you know, part of that is taking care of yourself. It's funny because all my friends from law school are like immigration attorneys and um, public defenders and doing these jobs that like make mine look like a cakewalk. So part of it is it's a, a question of relativity. You know, I'm not taking clients into a courtroom every day where I know that they're probably going to get deported no matter what I do. So in a lot of ways, I'm lucky. On the other end of that is that it's a tough field. It can be very, very, very depressing, um, and it can be very discouraging. But for the grace of God, uh, what is it there? But for the grace of God, go I. God, go yeah, I. Yeah, that, that thing. You know, that thing, <laughs> that thing that they say. Um, I think that that's what I try to keep in mind. So Part of it is like trying not to work too much and, you know, watching The Good Place as much as possible when <laughs> I'm stressed out. But Josie, the idea of you not working too much is the funniest thing. I I've know. Ever heard and I know. Life. When you're in it, when you're working in the system every single day, you realize that there are people sitting in prison, solitary confinement, death row, you know, people who haven't seen their families in 20 years, people who have like serious mental health issues that the jails are treating instead of a real facility, people who have lost their kids and families and uh, friends to drug addiction in a system that like prioritizes punishment over treatment, people who can't get a job because they served 10 years and now nobody wants to hire them people who didn't see their kids grow up, you know, because they were serving time for something that they were probably serving too much time for. And when you think about all of those people, what can you really do but fight, especially when there are people serving time in prison right now for decades for stuff that the president is doing, you know, for cheating and and lying to people on a smaller scale. And so the injustice and sort of the tragedy of it is both depressing but also motivating because I am lucky enough to be sitting here having this conversation with you. We're lucky enough to be able to talk about this stuff every day. I've heard from people in various iterations of my work over the years who are like, nobody cares about us. Nobody cares about me. Nobody's listening. And so it's important to me that people know that I'm I'm listening and that the people there are people out there who are fighting. And also I eat ice cream for breakfast. That is my self-care. <laughs> That's my real self-care. That makes me so happy. <laughs> Ugh, I'm so glad that like when I get caught for fraud, you're who is gonna bail oh me. Oh my god, out. girl, Thank I god. got you. Thank you. Um <laughs> oh also like very serious question. Yes. Best best and worst ADA of Law and Order SVU. Oh my god. This is so okay. Best I think is what who's the guy that just left? Bar bar. Bar Barber. Barba? You think Barba was the best? Yeah, I mean, because that woman was the worst, the blonde one. Okay, I here's what I'm going to tell you. First <laughs> of all, the ranking is Alex Cabot. Okay, right, correct. Is that who you think is the worst? Yeah, the, the, the blonde one, your favorite. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, I mean, there are many blonde ones. I like that one. Yeah, the one also, who was, you the know, one who's, was married. Wasn't she married to him? What's his name in real life? She had Bobby to go to Flay. the witness protection program. I know. She had to go to the witness protection program. I know. Program. Okay, can we just talk about that was the worst the, that was the worst plot line of all the, the plot worst. lines on us which is how really how she came back is awful. I know. But also the next best one is Elizabeth Donnelly. Wait, which one uh, is she Judith again? Judith Light. Hold on, I'm looking at Judith her Light. I have to know. I have to see She is the one. Come on, you know her. She is the one that Oh like, yeah. No, um, okay. Okay. Yeah. I think I liked her. You know what I mean? Yeah. She she did the bad thing and then she like she got all of the bad uh, judges off. Right, whatever. and then she became a judge. And then, right. right, and the next is Casey Novak, 
And then after that is Barba. Okay, I uh, like Barba because sometimes Barba is like somewhat reasonable. He like will sometimes be like, we're not going to win this case. And I like appreciate the like reality. Also, weren't you the one who wanted Barba and Olivia to like make it work? Listen, it's not me. I thought that's what the show was doing, but I was really rooting for them. I, but, you know, also, Law & Order is very bad at, like, you know, dating attachments because they definitely wrote Barba kind of as gay in the beginning. Right. And then all of a sudden, there was a woman involved. I know. It got... Like, uh, they're so... You know, like, not to be heteronormative about the whole right, thing. Right. Anything's like, possible. I think mm-hmm. that everybody can follow their bliss. I'm just saying that I don't think that's what's happening in the Law & Order writer's room. Can we... You know what I'm can saying? Can we talk about... Have you watched any episodes this season? No, I haven't. They're all on my DVR. Same. And I'm going to sit down and catch Same. them. Same. But I want to get back to, like, the worst ADAs. Okay. Um, whoever Paula... Peyton Patton played. Oh my god, I like, forgot about that. She was so bad. Yeah, she got fired. She got fired in like one episode and then Sharon Stone was so bad. Sharon Stone was terrible. Here's my thing about Casey Novak. Casey Novak's like whole thing is that she has like a high conviction rate. She's like, like she's like, she's like, I <laughs> You convicted. don't like that? You don't like All high I'm saying is that like Josie? conviction rates are not synonymous with justice and that prosecutors should probably be doing using various um, <laughs> metrics to determine whether or not their ADAs are successful. So what about she didn't try cases where she knew that there was not enough evidence to convict? Anyway, Casey Novak who gets do my you think, Who do you think would write that TV show? The TV show that's actually like the woke justice TV show? So you know where? Because you know my pet peeve in all of legal television. And if I had like a bazillion dollars... One of the things that I would do is that I would literally give money to TV shows to write so good. that they would never, ever, ever tell a person who is in a in in a police in police custody that if they call their lawyer, people think that they're guilty. I know. I was like, that no. is the thing. That is the thing that I was like, if I had all of the money in the world, but the thing for like is, all these dumb legal TV shows, that's what I would do. I was like, I want the TV show where the minute you step in, the police goes, do you want your lawyer? Right. Here? And it's a very normal interaction, right? You know, because I think that you know, it's so funny that you would say that because we talk about this a lot at my job. It's like does art imitate life or vice versa in a lot of these situations, which is like the whole thing. I mean, that's a great example when you, when they're like, I want my lawyer and they're like, Oh, if you call your lawyer, it looks bad. It's like, that's an insane thing to say and also implies to people, but it's also what they say to you. So how do you like tell the honest truth about what happens in these places and these situations? And I think the other example I would give is like, what about the, what about there's no middle ground, right? And any of these shows, SVU, especially, you don't see a lot of the episodes where it's like a woman comes in and she's like, I was raped. And then the guy is like, I didn't think that was rape. Like, I thought she agreed, which is like a very common and much more complicated situation. Oh, you mean the you mean the nuance reality? The nuanced of reality of like, happen. yes, exactly. Yeah, Law and order does not trade in nuance right. or reality. And so what it, it tells is people is that situation. all racists are like sociopaths who attack you on the street or like callous, heartless demons who don't care which is the reality is like rape happens among very complicated situations in which like women still deserve you know and it is often not a stranger and it's often not a stranger happens on svu is somebody like climbs through your window you know like that thing of just like everybody is afraid of living in new york because you think that somebody is just going to climb exactly exactly that never happens you would you would do better to teach everybody that the usually the signs of danger are people that you know exactly and that's also what makes it 
that's what makes it so hard right. is because they are people that you know and the dynamic is now complicated. Right. So, so it's awful. I think that that's like a really big problem is that we don't have people who might seem sympathetic, who have done wrong, mm-hmm. which I think is a disadvantage to women um, who are actually trying to navigate this system, who actually, you know, have experienced some sort of abuse or sexual trauma, and it doesn't fit the sort of pattern of what we imagine a rapist to be or an abuser to be. Those are the things I would change about SVU. On the other hand, I watch SVU all the time, even though I like... Are you kidding? You and I know, girl. Terrible. I'm always like, every week I'm like, Amina, have you seen... And it's gotten, like, know, really but you know outrageous, what? but I can't stop. But don't you think that part of the reason... I Like, I, I will not speak for everybody, but I will say that, like, I think that a huge fascination with something like Law & Order is I think that it does two things. One is that it is almost like picking at a scab, you right. know, for people who have gone through, like, any kind of trauma yes. or are aware of it. Or also if it's... Or just, like, it explores, like, a lot of fears that women have, yes, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. In this, like, very specific kind of way, and it's very salacious or whatever. Right. I think that I think that Law & Order weirdly does well is that it shows you the reality of what happens when women who report assault deal with the criminal justice system. Yeah. I wonder if that's, and I wonder it, if that's, I wonder, you know, I don't. Where, like, I, I don't know, like, and, and I'm not, I don't know that it's good or bad. Right. But I know that, like, it is a thing that, it is not taken lightly, right? It's like, yes, actually, like, when you when you get involved in the system, like, here are the people that pressure you. Right, here right, is, right, right, right. Here, right. here is what, like, you will feel conflicted about. Right. You know, it's like all of the men who were, like, pro-Kavanaugh, I wish that they were the ones who watched Law & Order. Right. Because everybody who watches Law & Order knows that, like, <laughs> there is no victim of sexual assault who is, like, I would love to talk about yes, this. Yes, <laughs> like, yes, This is yes. not, you know, I like, think that's definitely even true. the women in Law and Order who have turned out to be liars yeah. you know, like, when it has happened a few times. Right. It was always a case that was so complicated that they didn't, like, no, yeah, they didn't like, wake up one morning. Like, sure. And, right, exactly. Yeah. And I think P- people are not out here pressing charges. And I was like, this, like, this is a thing that, like, I think that a lot of women have internalized. Right. Whereas I'm like, oh, actually, it's probably like the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world who need to watch Law and Order so that they they know that like assault is among us right. every single day. And I would say that like you know to that point, I think the one thing that it probably romanticizes, or among the things that romanticizes, is the care of you know the existence. I mean, I don't know every like SVU cop in New York, right? But like Olivia Benson, someone who has like de- dedicated their life to ensuring these women get justice. I don't think. You know, people get, this system wears you out. It burns you out. And eventually people start coming in and, you know, you hear case after case of women saying like, well, I reported it, but they said that like there's no way they'd be able to prove it and they didn't really go forward with it. And so you see, you see these like two sort of realities. One is in most cases, we're, we're never too lenient. We're never, we're never too easy on someone who's committed a criminal offense. We're usually too hard on them. But, you know, you often hear stories of people who just don't get any justice in a situation where they've been sexually assaulted because the criminal justice system doesn't end up giving them a lot of attention. And you see it a lot with people who are sex workers who, because of what their profession, are treated as unable to be assaulted or unable to suffer from rape. And it is a complicated system that is not necessarily tooled towards addressing nuanced and complicated and 
difficult crimes. You know, they, the criminal justice system is built for something very straightforward, and much of this is not. Josie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so I, much for having um, me. This was great. And thank you also, you know, like, just for being my friend and for really challenging me to think about this in a way that is, like, smarter and more compassionate and and really, like, more connected to all other issues that I care about. And, and thank you for the hard work that you do. Well, like, you, know you know what I always like, say? I'm like, great. Amina is the best thing that happened to me in the past five years, minus Nico. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, minus my Nico. kid, you... Zach, my husband. You are <laughs> you are ridiculous. You are ridiculous. I love you so um, much. Can you tell everybody? Can you tell everybody where they can find your? Yeah. Work? So um, we are at theappeal.org. You can also find me on Twitter at jduffyrace. And um, if you have questions, your Twitter is very good. Thanks. Your Twitter is very thanks. Good. And if you have questions or thoughts, you can always email me at uh, josie.duffy.rice at theappeal.org. And last plug, mm -hmm. uh, if you are in Atlanta, yes. Josie's amazing sister. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, Rosa has opened a bookstore yes. that is uh, obviously black woman owned. Yes. And it has like incredible African-American, like authored very rare books. Yes. All the classics. Unbelievable the classics, stuff. It's really incredible. All sorts of ephemera. Yes. It's amazing. It's called Four Keeps Bookstore. If you're in Atlanta. You should go. You love black women and you all should. You should check they it out. You absolutely should check it out. It's amazing. Thanks, Thank Rosa. you so much. It's at Four Keeps Books is the Instagram handle. You should check it out. <laughs> uh, ever more alienated on this podcast for my like you know decision to not participate in law and order culture <laughs> don't worry there's always time and don't worry don't worry i have deep faith that in the maybe the last decade of your life when you're 153 you will finally invest in the quest of olivia benson <laughs> it's all good <laughs> <laughs> someday I feel like it's gonna be one of those like we're both like on our you know like like in our whatever our communal retirement situation is like shriveled like old ladies and I'm like guess what dun dun I finally get it <laughs> <laughs> nothing would make me happier um I'm so glad Josie came on the podcast and uh I'm going to see you on the internet and I hope that you have a great trip. Oh my God. See you on the internet, but not for a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>